Ellos dicen que no valemos un carajo, pero durante tiempos de desesperación, de guerra, siempre golpen en las puertas nuestras. Ellos piensen que la sangre nuestra no vale para nada y perdemos la vida de los chicos que creen las mentiras. Creen que pelean para la patria y se gastan su vida. Creen que pelean para proteger lo que es nuestro. Nuestro. Nosotros no somos dueños de nada. Son ellos los que mandan.
Welcome to the Weekly Review with Romain. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. Today, it's Friday, March 19th, 2021. I mentioned we're back. We're, ah, gonna slow down a bit here. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio, which is on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone people, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. And for more information, uh, places to donate, maps, uh, news outlets to follow, and much more, please go to weeklyrev.org and click on the Land Acknowledgement tab, and we've got several links uh, with more information for you. So please do check that out. Started off the show with some uh, very fast music that we'll be playing throughout the show. I'm currently reading a book that is called X Straight Edge and Radical Sobriety, which has been edited by Gabriel Kuhn. And I'm playing many of the bands that were mentioned, that have been mentioned so far in the book. And there's a lot of bands, and granted, the songs are very, some of them are very short. So about halfway through the book. So uh, some of the bands I couldn't quite find yet, um, certainly uh, on Spotify anyway, which I know is an issue with its platform. However, I'll be playing some more of these bands. So these are all straight-edge hardcore bands. And I was reading one chapter recently, and one of the... And persons, <laughs> one of the people who was interviewed mentioned that uh, he feels the need, or he or she, I forget the person who said this, uh, felt the need to scream a lot. And if you go walking down the street screaming, people might look at you funny. However, if you're in a band, you can scream and it's all, and it makes sense or it's somehow more socially acceptable. So I thought about that a lot because if you've, oh, if you've been a longtime listener of the show, you know I sometimes scream on the show because there's a lot to scream about. There's just the constant uh, rage of, especially living in the United States, a country that says it's a democracy, yet there's so much state violence, uh, home and abroad, and it just continues, and it's fucking disgusting, and I hate coming in here every fucking week and having to, uh, the fact that it's this ongoing catastrophe. I don't even have the words for it. But there's another mass shooting, This time outside of Atlanta. And I'll take uh, a moment of silence and then we'll speak more about this. And I wanted to read the names of some of the people who were killed. I don't have a list of all the names uh, at the moment, but uh, I'll just read off the names. Delena Ashley Yone, Paul Andre Michelle, Xiao J. Tun, Julie Park, Hyun Jung Park, and Doyo Fang. And there's a couple more names, and I will do my best to get them uh, to share them by the end of the program today. And just incalculable loss for these people and their family members and their loved ones and also the fear that has been spreading, but the fear that's always been here in this country since its inception. And a couple days ago, uh, an elderly Asian woman was attacked on Market Street here in San Francisco and she defended herself with a cane. And it's not, San Francisco has this reputation of being this quote unquote progressive accepting town and 
we know it suffers from the same ills as everywhere else in this country in a lot of ways. No reason to stick one's nose up at other places in the country when we have this horrific violence happening right here. And also hearing of folks who are afraid to go outside and how this is just also there's been an uptick in anti-Asian violence in the last few years. And also, I see folks post about how this is un-American, yet if we want to talk about American foreign policy and the history of this country, uh, just to name a few things, uh, there's the Chinese Exclusion Act that was in the late 1800s. There was the Japanese internment camps. There was uh, the war in Vietnam, war in Korea, dropping atomic bombs on Japan, bombing Laos, Cambodia, Indonesia. And those last few, like the wars and dropping the bombs, that was all after World War II, so that's within the last 100 years. And that's not even everything. I'm sure I'm unfortunately missing even more. And that's harm that just caused abroad by this military and all of us taxpayers who fund the destruction and horror that's caused overseas. That often causes folks to then immigrate here. And then when people do immigrate here, looking for safety and a better life, then there's draconian policies and there's even more violence facing people. So to say that this somehow is an anomaly or comes from out of nowhere is just a disservice to the truth and to history. Ugh. few weeks ago on the show, I did read that there are, in, especially in Oakland, there were, there is a Google Doc where you can uh, volunteer to um, accompany Asian elders, especially out and about. So I'm going to go look for that right now on our website. And if you'd like to go check out weeklyrev.org, we've got links of articles information we've shared on previous episodes there and to act as a resource and again we're talking about what's happening in the world and what has happened in the world and also ways to combat that and ways to show up and as I mentioned every time uh, no matter who you are or what you're capable of or where you are there are ways that one can show up whether it's in person whether it's donating money whether it's having conversations with people while they're showing up online uh, pushing back against false narratives, um, creating other ways that folks can come together, going to rallies, publicizing rallies. There, I mean, there's just, it's unending. There's, I'm sure there's plenty of things I don't even mention on here. This is, again, a, a drop in the bucket, and perhaps I say this to keep myself from feeling completely hopeless in the state of all of this destruction. Um, but also as a reminder for whoever is listening out there that there are people who have always been showing up and there are ways to push back against it. Last week we did have some technical difficulties and unfortunately the show is not yet up on our server. However, it was recorded. So hopefully uh, within the next week or so it'll be up. And we do have the links already that were up that were discussed on the show um, on weeklyrev.org as well as links to uh, the music we played. 
So there's there's quite a lot there. <sighs> I'm going to take another deep breath. And going to continue. This is why it would behoove me, I think, to be to have a more even uh, thorough website so I can easily find uh, the information I'm looking to share right now. So let's see. And if I don't find it, this is in Texas. Oh, there's just so there's so many mutual aid foundations and organizations that are happening. And I also did want to play a piece from KPFA that was on the air on the 18th. And I might just get to that um, while I look for some more from specifically what I was looking to find. And I will we'll be going through some more news headlines on the show. Uh, Democracy Now! has a few news stories I thought were important to share. I'll be playing some more music. So if you feel like ah screaming along with it, or moving your body along with it, or just uh, looking up the lyrics, if that's possible. I'm sure a lot of these lyrics are like pretty fucking awesome. Uh, and also, and or also, uh, check out the the book I mentioned again. Let's see. Oh yeah, edited by Gabriel Kuhn, and that's K U H N X Straight Edge and Radical Sobriety. So it's all about uh, straight edge uh, punk musicians and uh, from around the world, which is really interesting and i've learned a lot so far and also very uh short chapters so so gabriel spoke spoke with a lot of people and also very short chapters so if you're like me and you have sometimes a bit of an attention span issue or can only pick up things for a little bit at a time it's a really great book so please check that out from your favorite independent bookseller yay wow i'm talking myself into uh some positivity here i'm gonna play some more music and I'm going to get some things together here. also wanted to share the names of the bands we played so far, Limp Wrist, Los Crudos, and Gather. And we'll be playing some more music from them as well. And also at the end of the show, um, uh, we post a link to the music. So if you like the music and you want to listen to more of it, we'll provide a link where you can just click on it and hear these bands. So I think that's pretty great. Okay. Here is, uh, let's see, what song shall we play next? How about, since we're talking about war a bit, there's a song called Industry of War by True Nature, and it has X's, it's X True Nature X, it's how it, it looks, and this is more of like a folk song, and then we'll get into some more, uh, so please do stay tuned. Breaking us out of the truth, touching grateful planet. I don't make us drop another bomb to keep it in danger. Violence is repetition. It wouldn't 
Marching to the workers and the families at war. Is an industry said war. Is part of the economy said war. Ain't about diplomacy. It's about our financial security. American builders with their contracts. Building on the ones that were bombing in Iraq. We got them all this. Weapon manufacturer, creating new disease and spreading a disaster. Trolling valleys, I be on the curtain, filling up the tankers. Palavertin media's propagating lies. Coming up with a new compromise at war. Is an industry said war. It's part of the economy said war. Ain't about diplomacy. It's about our financial security.
that was another song by Los Crudos. Before that, we heard Tomorrow Control, and before that, uh, or True Nature with X's. I'm not sure how to pronounce their names. X True. Oh, sorry. X True Nature. X True Nature with an. Anyway, you get it. So I mentioned earlier that there was a list, a uh, thread of ways that folks can show up um, to uh, push back against Asian uh, anti-Asian violence. And there is a link on our page, um, uh, weeklyrev.org. And if we go to the uh, February 12th uh, page, there's a link to a thread of, I'll leave these here because, so again, go to weeklyrev.org, click on uh, February 12th. There's a thread there that you can uh, check out. Also, I didn't mention earlier, in terms of there's the American-Philippine War in the mid and late 1800s when Philippines uh, folks wanted to push back against, I don't know why I say the word push back, maybe that's just uh, my word choice at the moment, but against uh, Spanish colonial rule, and then the United States decided to uh, fight with the Spaniards uh, against people in the Philippines. So again, just one more, and I'm sure there are many more. <sighs> okay, I'm gonna go now to, because I feel like I'm stumbling over my words at the moment, uh, definitely filled with uh, a lot of emotion and a lot of anger and frustration. And I think part of it also comes from the fact that we are living in a pandemic and also it's just changed how we interact with one another and what we can uh, show to one another in public. And for instance, I'm someone who I used to smile not all the time but uh definitely not all the time because there's plenty of reasons not to smile however if i was in public and i uh, was in a good mood i'd smile at someone i didn't know for instance and now that's not something i can do or i can do it just can't see because i'm wearing a mask so again not trying to be anti-mask it's more just the how does one show friendliness or compassion for someone without showing their mouth i guess that came out really weird hope folks understand where i'm coming from all right i'm gonna give myself <laughs> a, a break here and I'm going to play uh, this from KPFA. This is on from their show on uh, March 18th in, in the morning. And uh, you can find it again at kpfa.org. And we'll also provide a link as well. <sighs> OK, here we go. Fallout from the mass shootings in Atlanta. We're going to have a conversation about what organizing against anti-Asian hate actually looks like. And we're going to take that conversation back to where we broadcast, which is here in the state of California. Uh, we are joined, or, or hope to be momentarily, by Younghee Choi, uh, Deputy Director of Power California, which is a statewide multiracial civic engagement organization building the electoral power of young voters of color. And as I mentioned a moment ago, um, the conversation about how to mobilize against this hate is something that had been playing out here before the mass shooting. Uh, Young Hee Che, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Brian. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, how are you? How did this land with you? Um, wow, I wasn't expecting that question. Um, it's, it's been difficult. Um, it's been hard. You know, uh, I'd like to first start with acknowledging 
you know, the victims and their families of Tuesday's shootings, you know, six of, of course, of the eight who were Asian women. They were mothers and daughters and sisters and aunts who'll never go home to their loved ones. And my family, who's actually personally been touched by racist violence. When I was a child, my father was beaten by white coworkers at the factory where he worked and they had taunted him and accused him of stealing American jobs and told him to go back to his country uh, and then beat him. And fortunately, my father wasn't killed, but I have some inkling of the long-term pain and devastation that the impact of racist violence can have. And so my heart really goes out to the victims and their families and their communities. I think um, this is something that a lot of us who are not part of the Asian or Asian American community uh, don't have a narrative or, or language to, to fit it into uh, what's happening right now. Our coverage has been so dominated by uh, anti-Black violence for, for the past couple years. Can, can you describe kind of what you've been watching, what you've been dealing with over the course of the past year? Sure. You know, there's been um, an increase, you know, you know as, um, of this is not the first incidence. There's actually been an increase of uh, anti-Asian violence for this past year. Uh, and the violence and the rise of hate incidents against Asians that's been documented like uh, by groups like Stop A API Hate, which has documented over 150% increase against of, um, of, of anti-racist violence uh, against Asians. It doesn't come out of thin air. You know, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, for the past four years, you know, starting with the past four years, the former president of the United States and his right-wing allies have fueled extremism and white nationalism and fear, you know, that black people and immigrants and Asians were taking over this country. And we saw the culmination of that on January 6th, Capitol riots. But they've been scapegoating and fanning xenophobia against Asians during this pandemic as hundreds of thousands of Americans have died from COVID to deflect from their own failures and to address, you know, the, uh, and their failures to address the health and economic crisis uh, and essentially putting a target on the backs of every Asian person in this country and pitting Americans against one another in a moment where we really need to pull together the most. Um, so that, you know, that that this past year uh, in particular has really fueled the recent surge of violence, but this is certainly not the first time that politicians have scapegoated and fanned anti-Asian racism. You know, this is really a recycled play out of a white supremacist playbook that's been around for you know the you know for for centuries, and so the violence against Asians that we see today is is actually part of a long history of being excluded and attacked in this country. You know, not only were there laws excluding Asians from entry into the United States and denying us citizenship, you know, until you know at least seventy years ago, there were also mass expulsions, mob attacks, and massacres targeting Asians throughout the nineteenth century. Uh, you know, Asians were vilified at the time for being cheap laborers, dirty and uncivilized, and threats to white workers. And these incidents actually happened throughout the West from Tacoma, Washington, to Los Angeles and Eureka, you know, all the way to Wyoming, where 28, you know, Chinese coal miners were massacred by a mob of white workers. And so, and politicians ran, you know, entire campaigns on defeating, you know, the quote unquote yellow peril. And so there's this pattern, you know, 
uh, throughout the 19th century, but also all the way uh, into the 20th century, where there's been moments and surges of anti-Asian racism and violence. You know, obviously the Japanese American incarceration during World War II, uh, during the 1980s, when folks like my dad and Vincent Chin were, you know, uh, who was killed by white Detroit auto workers uh, and were blamed for taking American jobs during the height and period of competition between Asia and the U.S. Uh, already the post 9 11 attacks on uh, South Asians and Muslims. And so the violence toward our communities today is nothing new. Um, in a country, you know, that's founded on the genocide of indigenous people, enslavement of black people, and the exclusion and violence against immigrants, it's actually very consistent with our history as a nation. And it's an extension of the white supremacist violence that's been, um, that's, you know, has existed since our founding. And so, you know, perhaps the reason that the public is only becoming more of it, aware of it now is that for too long, Asians have been perceived as, as this model minority. You know, this myth and this lie that Asians don't struggle with racism and, um, be, you know, and that we're seen as this acceptable, quote unquote, minority, minority compared to black and brown people. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think these are some of the longer historic trends that have, um, you know, that are underlying what we're seeing today. I want to talk about the reaction, um, because before the shooting here in California had gone in, in a bunch of different directions uh, after a string of incidences in Oakland, I saw several like, you know, it, Asian celebrities put up bounties or rewards uh, for, for capturing or arresting people responsible. I separately saw a community push to put together community safety patrols as an alternative uh, to asking yeah. for police responses to an already overly policed African-American community. Um, what do you think is the most productive way to organize a response? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. I think, you know, that's that's been so um, amazing to see how communities have come together, um, you know, creating their own community safety, uh, you know, looking out for one another, keeping each other safe. Uh, you know, I've seen people walking each other home, neighbors doing their own patrols, um, and folks really stepping up within the Asian community and, and across different communities to really stand against uh, uh, the hate and to, um, to actually protect one another. You know, in the long term, I think that, you know, the first thing we got to do is we got to fund our communities, especially those who've been left behind, who've suffered tremendously in this pandemic. And policing and adding more policing is not the answer. And so, you know, fully funding our communities, right? Our healthcare, our schools, our jobs, and our parks so that every community has what it needs to thrive. And so that everyone can live with dignity, no matter what we look like or where we come from, because that's when we have true public safety. You know, the safest neighbors don't have more police on every corner. In fact, it's the absence of police that indicate when a community is safe. Uh, and it's the abundance of good jobs and good schools and healthy foods and grocery stores and parks and libraries and services. So I think that's one of the first things that we got to do is we got to really fund our communities to get to true public safety. Secondly, I think Asians have to organize and be a part of the larger movement for racial justice and to end all forms of white supremacist violence and racial inequality. So why do we lift up the lives and memories of those who've died on Tuesday? I think we also have to lift up the names of Brianna and George and Philando and Tamir and those who are still seeking justice. And, you know, as, um, as Deputy Director of Power California, I believe that we are seeing shifts in the Asian American community. You know, we did a poll last year with Latino decisions 
um, uh, where we surveyed you know, young people of color across California. And we found that 80% of Asian American young people in California believe that police violence against black people was one of the top issues that needed to be addressed. Uh, and expressed overwhelming support for Black Lives Matter and efforts to defund police and for racial justice. And so I believe we're headed in the right direction. I believe there's a lot more work to be done, but I think that, you know, that gives me a lot of hope. All right. Young-Hee Che, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you so much, Brian. Young-Hee Che is Deputy Director of Power California. That's a statewide multiracial civic engagement organization bringing the electoral power building the electoral power of young voters of color. Uh, we're going to pick up that conversation about alternatives in a few minutes uh, when we debrief the brief tenure of Oakland's reimagining public safety task force, which held its last hearing last night uh, and has now put the fate of efforts to move resources from policing to other measures in the hands of the Oakland City Council. Before we do, I just want to throw in uh, kind of one historic addendum to what Young Hee Che was talking about. Um, I saw a lot of really dumb debates playing out in social media based on what little we know about the killer's mindset about whether this was racism or sexism. Obviously, it can be both. But particularly in our country's history um, of anti-Asian hate and exclusion, those two have always been tightly linked. Um, seven years before the Chinese Exclusion Act passed, the very first law barring any form of immigration to this country specifically targeted Chinese women. Actually, the language in the bill was Oriental women. It was mostly used against Chinese women. It was called the Page Act. And it barred them for, quote, lewd and immoral purposes. Anyone immigrating for, quote, lewd and immoral purposes. They constructed a law uh, because of a moral panic uh, about a sexual stereotype of Asian women that was effectively used against all of them and created a largely male Chinese workforce here in the United States that had a, a hard time establishing families and settling. Um, it, it goes back to the very beginning. All right, that's all I have to say. I've taken too long to say it. That takes us to 7.33 in the morning. We'll be back talking to James Birch and Liz Suck when we return after the news. Hi, Mylena. Okay. So I'm going to play a little bit more from that because I did want to hear, or at least share a bit more from that. And I guess I did not, uh, I think I didn't quite get the right, I wrote down one of the times. Anyway, I'm going to play a bit more music and then we'll get back to uh, KPFA because I really appreciate a lot of what they shared. And next up, here's a band called Second Combat with a song called Let's Give It Up.
problema contra el hambre del poder de los que nunca tendrán hambre. First band we heard was a second combat with Let's Give It Up, and then we heard Tamar Control with uh, Patria Muerta, and we're going to go back and continue playing some of the episode from Upfront on KPFA from March 18th. I have some really good interviews here, so I wanted to share that, and you can find the interviews in their full length at kpfa.org, and we'll also provide a link on our website at weeklyrev.org. front and Brian Edwards Teekert. Kent Brooks is off today and we're going to pick up uh, on the theme we ended on when we were covering the mass shooting in Atlanta uh, and that is alternatives to police responses that generate public safety. This is a conversation that really got national traction uh, after the uprisings in, in the wake of the George Floyd killing. Um, I say it got traction in the national conversation because suddenly defunding police was not something that activists and radicals talked about to each other, <laughs> but everyone in the political spectrum, including Republicans uh, in baying against it, were talking about. You get other people debating on your turf, uh, you know you are getting somewhere. Uh, this has been playing out in detail in the city of Oakland, where a lot of the proposals for moving resources away from policing to civilianized forms of public safety have been moving through something called the Reimagining Public Safety Task Force, uh, which notched an early victory on Tuesday night when the Oakland City Council acted on its recommendation uh, to create a civilian unit for responding to mental health emergencies overseen by the fire department. Uh, other recommendations that have been moving through the task force went to, I guess, what you could call a votorama last night, which of, most of which took place well after my bedtime. We're going to talk now and debrief with two of the people who were part of the process. James Birch is policy director of the Anti-Police Terror Project and president of the National Lawyers Guild San Francisco Bay Area chapter and a member of Oakland's Reimagining Public Safety Task Force. Good morning, James. 
Good morning, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Also with us, Liz Sook, Interim Executive Director for Oakland Rising, which mobilizes and educates voters in the Flatlands around issues of social justice. Liz, I believe you were on one of the advisory bodies to the Reimagining Public Safety Task Force? I was. I was on the budget and data advisory boards um, on the city budget uh, working group. I'm very proud to be a part of that group with them. Listen, um, I was going to start by asking both of you to catch me up on, on what happened after my bedtime last night, because it doesn't look like many reporters stayed up with you. Um, but but I, I actually want to start by um, centering the conversation on, on what's unfolding in Atlanta in the wave of this mass shooting um, targeting Asian spas and massage parlors. And I'm curious how, how the news landed with both of you, what you're thinking about now. Liz, do you want to start? Sure. Thank you, Brian. And I appreciate you beginning by acknowledging that because um, I think that that as an experience uh, was very interesting for me um, as um, a Korean living on Ohlone land, having been um, displaced, my family being displaced in, from Korea and coming to the United States as a result of U.S. intervention and war in, um, in Korea. And um, to just the linkages to uh, the defund movement here and um, when we talk about defund and when we talk about demilitarizing the um, OPD and um, what does it mean when we have um, millions or thousands of uh, women around the world who are uh, in the sex trade around military camps and you know what that linkage is to the spas um, and massage and sex work here in the United States that are run by um, Korean men. Um, and to, to see that misogyny and that racism um, play out um, in Atlanta was heartbreaking. Um, and it's all in a context of, you know, uh, that, we're, that we're immigrants living on, you know, native land and living in communities um, in the South um, that are predominantly black and uh, the disenfranchisement of that and the over-policing that happens in black and brown communities um, and in the sex trade. And so um, it was heartbreaking to see that. And, um, you know, I, even in my most tender moment yesterday, um, decided that I had to keep my eye on the prize um, around the defund work and in Oakland and to be, I'm very proud to um, just be a part of the defund coalition um, alongside APTP and, uh, for their longstanding work um, in Oakland. And so just to see those linkages, right, like uh, immediately after, um, after the news came out, NYPD decides that they're going to start um, surveilling and policing <laughs> massage parlors in New York City. Um, and it was a really interesting response. It was also an interesting, um, also disgusting response by the um, police officers in Atlanta around in Georgia um, that, you know, he, the dude was just having a bad day um, and instead of really looking at and not wanting to name that this was an act of racism and misogyny, um, that this was a targeting of Asians. Um, and I'm, I'm really heartbroken by um, that this is actually, uh, these were Korean-owned businesses, and I'm heartbroken um, by um, the deaths that resulted. Thank you. Um, 
James, the way coverage of a rise in crimes targeting Asian Americans has played out here, it has often uh, seemed to be trying to pit the black community against the Asian Asian American community. What, what went through your head when you saw the news from Atlanta? Um, uh, my heart was broken, uh, Brian. Um, I can't possibly uh, express or encapsulate uh, uh, as Liz did uh, the, the horrors that, that, that befell us yesterday uh, or two days ago. Um, uh, but what I can say is that it has been humbling, not only in this instance, you know, not only hearing it before my very eyes today, uh, but witnessing uh, the incredible leadership uh, of uh, the Asian community in Oakland um, handle all of these incredibly difficult situations at an incredibly difficult time by leaning into the difficulty, uh, embracing uh, the most difficult moments and providing the rest of the community uh, a, a North Star they can follow in an effort to uh, when times are tough, continue to push forward with what we know is true, is that we keep us safe, uh, that it is our communities that we depend on, uh, and that uh, the stronger uh, ties we build between our communities, the better off everybody will be. Liz, I was kind of struck um, running a mental comparison to Dylan Roof Yes. where everybody seemed very comfortable very quickly calling it an act of racism, an act of white supremacy when, when he goes into a black church and massacres people. Uh, but from official, then from the Cher uh, Cherokee County Sheriff's Office, uh, from a lot of press reporting, there's this incredible tentativeness uh, about what plugging what happened uh, in Atlanta into a narrative around racism and white supremacy. Um, I, I wonder if you feel like like that's just something we haven't talked about enough? Yeah, you know, thank you, Brian, for that. And I, you know, the, the, the issue, it, you know, it took me a really long time to actually jump into the conversation around the violence against Asians in the United States because it's contextualized in the um, the violence and the war that has been perpetrated in Asia by the United States um, and the imperialism uh, um, of that that goes back now a hundred years um, and further um, with their need to colonize imperialize um, you know Europe and uh, and you know the rest of the world as well um, that our third world liberations um, and struggles have been tied for hundreds of years to imperialism. And so when I look at what's happening at Atlanta, um, the first thing that struck me was it was happening in the South. Um, and it is not only in the South. Um, and when I think about um, the many, many, many unnamed instances and many, many documented instances of lynching and violence that has been committed against um, the black community um, that goes back to slavery, that that these institutions aren't new. Um, but what has happened for the, what's unique, I think, to both um, the Latinx and uh, the 
you know, the Asian community in the United States is that we're seen as foreigners. Um, we're perpetually put in a place where we are invisible, invisible. We're seen as um, outsiders. We're seen as those who are trying to take away jobs um, and that we are trying to encroach on neighborhoods and people. And it's actually the institutions of the United States um, governments that um, continue to perpetuate redlining by um, pushing um, Asian communities into black communities, pushing um, Latino communities into, um, into specific neighborhoods so that we're all pitted against each other for resources, for the scarcity that um, white supremacy uh, lends us. Um, and so in this moment, when I think about it, um, I, I think sometimes it can be dangerous by saying, oh, well, this is, you know, they're getting a lot of press and we're not, you know, and why isn't anybody paying attention to us? And when our focus actually needs to be that within the system of white supremacy, it's set up that way. We're set up so that we can pretend we don't need to think about um, these women being trafficked or these women within the sex trade and that they're invisible, that they're, they're, they don't have a voice. Um, that the first news that came out was about this dude's, I'm not even going to say his name, but this dude, um, you know, his story, you know, like mm -hmm. trying to excuse it. There was no, there wasn't there, there was no names of the victims of their families and their experiences and the struggles and lives that they live. That sex workers um, within the massage parlors and across this country are often deemed as um, something that you can ignore, that you can point a finger at, that you can uh, look and say that they um, they are doing something sinful, let's say, right? And so you can continue to um, fantasize about Asian women, you can continue to look as, uh, as foreigners, but we're seen just as objects. And so this this is what plays that played out specifically in this in this instance, but it is in a context, it can't be seen as just something that was a one-off situation. I, can, I can't sit here and compare it to the struggles and the violence that the black community has felt for hundreds of years at the hands of this country. Um, we, we only have names for four of the eight people who were killed uh, in that mass shooting. I'll, I'll say them again here, uh, Du Yu Fung, Zhao Jie Tan, Delena Ashley Yuan, and Paul Andre Nichols. I believe there were two other names that came out yesterday, um, but I, I was not prepared to, to recite their names this morning. Um, but I, I will be happy to, to share that with you, Brian, at a later oh, okay. date, a later time. Thank you. Yeah. Um, all right, and take a, a deep breath and and try to turn back to the conversation <laughs> we actually booked you both to talk about. And, uh, I appreciate your forbearance uh, with discussing Atlanta. Um, you, you've both been through this lengthy process of trying to put this philosophy um, that has gone by the moniker of police abolition or defunding police or, or refunding, reimagining public safety into practice in the city of Oakland. The Reimagining Public Safety Task Force wrapped up its business last night. Um, J James, maybe we could start with you. Um, what what made it out of the committee? What are the big fights still outstanding when recommendations go to council? Uh, absolutely, Brian. Thanks so much. And, and again, I just want to uh, appreciate Liz uh, for uh, um, dropping so much wisdom on us uh, uh, this morning and, and sharing uh, 
uh, her lens and experience. It's, it's truly invaluable at this time. Um, so uh, it was a Votorama, Brian. It was a Votorama, Brian. I think it ended at about 1.35 is when we adjourned the meeting. Uh, and so I'm still in the whirlwind trying to collect um, exactly what passed and what didn't pass. But I have a quick list of some highlights that I can share with folks that I think are exciting. Um, when it comes to alternatives to policing, like shifting police duties to other uh, agencies, uh, moving traffic, moving uh, specific parts of traffic enforcement to Oak Dot, and exploring ways to move, uh, eventually move all of traffic to Oak Dot was passed. Uh, the acronym is uh, Oakland Department of Transportation. Yeah, sorry, and I will uh, cease with the jargon. Um, um, uh, the Community Ambassador Program, uh, as, as has been popularized in Oakland's Chinatown, uh, a recommendation that that be continued was passed, a recommendation uh, pushing for the full funding of the macro program, uh, which is uh, uh, the uh, uh, first responder program that's housed underneath the fire department that was uh, uh, passed uh, a unanimously through city council, took another step forward through city council unanimously on Tuesday. Um, there is a recommendation to dissolve what they call the OPD homeless outreach unit and invest in mobile street outreach that is not led by law enforcement. There are several decrim, what we call decriminalization and harm reduction re recommendations. One to provide a public health response to addiction uh, and drug use. One to repeal laws criminalizing homelessness and poverty one to expand and fund existing harm reduction services, and one to stop enforcement of laws that criminalize sex trade between consenting adults. Um, there's some overdue investments for the city of Oakland recommended. There's three recommendations in preventing, uh, that, that, that support the prevention of gender-based violence and also support resources for survivors. There's an investment in reentry support. Uh, and overall, through the whole process, there's a focus on youth and ensuring that we reprioritize an investment in them and involve them in city decision-making processes. Um, there's a demilitarization recommendation. There's several that, that focus on the, the, the difficulty that is defunding the Oakland Police Department with the current shape of their city contract. So capping OPD overtime, uh, uh, renegotiating the OPOA uh, contract in 2021 instead of 2024, uh, and engaging the community to amend Measure Z, which is a ballot measure that, one, provides a staffing floor, a uh, minimum number of sworn staff that Oakland needs to retain to receive the tax benefits of the measure, uh, and two, gives money to different violence prevention agencies and some money to law enforcement, and it sunsets in 2024, and so talking about how it can be expanded to uh, reflect um, the wants and needs of, 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 of this task force. Um, a cannabis uh, the, the recommendations of the Cannabis Commission move forward. They recommended that we create a civilian department of cannabis, invest in the equitable development of the cannabis industry, and lower the cannabis business tax from 5%. I think it was just lowered from 5%. I don't know exactly where it is now, but it's recommended that we move it to 1.5%, which is what it is in San Francisco. And then in terms of OPDs, weapons, and toys, uh, eliminating the Bearcat and eliminating the Mounted Horses unit. And so, again, that's like a... That's like a high level of what's going on is uh, a lot of ideas to try to take roles away from the Oakland Police Department uh, and started investing in existing services that are underfunded or new programs. And so the next step for all of us 
uh, is to collaborate with the facilitators uh, and create a plan for implementation because all of these ideas are great. Uh, but I know of many task forces that have put forth hundreds of recommendations, uh, none of which have been implemented. And so uh, uh, there's still plenty of work to do to make sure that these aren't just a fun wish list. These are things that are actually uh, seen by the people of Oakland. So let's drill down the first thing you mentioned, uh, moving moving traffic enforcement to a civilian agency, the Department of Transportation, um, because this is not like pie in the sky. This is something uh, the city I'm in, Berkeley, is theoretically committed to doing in the near future. Um, and it's also one of the areas of policing where like the worst uh, racial and anti-black disparities exist, like pretextual traffic stops, people getting pulled over for taillights and then searched for drugs and, and, and things spiraling down from there. Um, what, what would it actually look like in practice? Does the Department of Transportation have the capacity to, to absorb those functions? I think that's one of the things that we would need to do, Brian, is, is, is while we defund, while we take these roles out of uh, the Oakland Police Department, increase the capacity of the Department of Transportation to take on these services, kind of like how the macro program is moving a lot of service calls to fire, uh, to the Oakland Fire Department, and as a result, the size of the fire department will increase, right? And so uh, when it comes to traffic itself, it's, it's, it's likely to happen in two phases. There's some, there's a lack of clarity in state law as to whether um, cities can have DOT do um, uh, the Department of Transportation ha uh, handle uh, um, enforcement of traffic laws. Uh, and so it, as a result, mm. it's not done. And so that's something that folks are seeking clarity uh, uh, at the state level and perhaps some state legislation you'll see maybe next year on that issue. Uh, I know that there are several. You, you mean state law about. might compel you to have traffic laws enforced by someone who's a, a sworn officer with a badge and a gun? Oh no, no. Sorry, sorry for the confusion. State law would clarify the ability for the Department of Transportation to uh, assume those functions if a city so wished. Right, right now it. it's unclear if they could even do that, and so because of the liability issue, I'm assuming it's not something that people are really exploring. But even even with all of those things. Um, down the road when it comes to major enforcement, when it comes to traffic accidents, and when it comes to uh, um, enforcement of traffic laws. And just to zoom out for a second, traffic accounts for 12.6% of service calls uh, uh, for OPD. Um, you know, there are, about, there are several other categories that can be gotten rid of right away that would just start saving us a ton of money. Like uh, there are... In 2019, there were 6,869 calls for service that there was an auto uh, blocking a driveway, right? And so, uh, and also law enforcement, OPD is assigned to special events to do traffic duty when that can be moved to DOT as well. And so if we just do those things in a, in a large number of small tweaks like that, moving things out of OPD where we can, we can save millions and millions and millions of dollars. And so I think that's just kind of in a microcosm uh, what we say when we mean there's so much money on the table when it comes to defunding OPD. Very small categories that people might never notice. I might not ever notice like uh, 6,000 calls for an auto blocking a driveway can save us hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I've seen that one of the proposals for taking like traffic enforcement responsibilities away from police involves using tech to automate them, right? Like like speed guns coupled with license plate readers. Um, 
which seems to me like would raise some surveillance and privacy concerns. De definitely. Um, we're on the same page, Brian. Uh, uh, I think um, I know that in, 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 in when I heard folks um, walking in that direction, I make clear that there we have a long uh, and storied, the black community has a long and storied history of state-based surveillance, and so establishing more tools uh, for a government to surveil black people when they're already flush with such tools is not something uh, that I or the Anti-Police Terror Project is, is about whatsoever. Um, Liz Suck, reflections on the reimagining public safety task force process in Oakland that, that you were a part of now that the task force at least has wrapped up its work? I, I, I am very, I just want to, I always want to start when we talk about issues like this that um, about the people power, right? Um, the, mobili the mobilizing of people that really came out from the community. Um, and uh, through this process, we were um, able to talk to thousands of residents and really push the conversation around, I mean, even the, the establishment of the task force itself was um, after um, decade of work by APTP and the defund OPD campaign that they ran and that uh, the coalition of 13 organizations that really came together around this um, last summer um, and really um, catapulted this not only into the, you know, the national spotlight, but also um, that, you know, we were able to talk to residents in Oakland. We were able to really um, put it into the news to to get people, to get it in people's ears, to get it coming out of their mouths, to have the conversation. And, um, you know, Oakland Rising, we did a survey um, to uh, folks in the community. We texted um, out to uh, 30,000 residents, and we heard back from about a little over 1,100 um, residents in Oakland, and 65% of them said when asked if we should defund OPD by 50% and reinvest, refund, restore communities, uh, black and brown communities in the flatlands of Oakland, 65% of the people said yes. Um, and so we are seeing um, the, the fruits of that. And I think that when we look at, um, you know, uh, the next steps that come, uh, it's on city council now to really take these recommendations, hear the voice of the hundreds of thousands of people in Oakland, the hundreds of the thousands of people, sorry, <laughs> too early, the thousands of people in Oakland who, um, who have said, um, and the hundreds of thousands and millions across this country who have said it is time to defund the police. And I think we can be at the forefront of that. And it is through the power of the people in the communities and the organizers uh, who have been doing the work. Um, during this time, we heard a lot of slander about APTP. We heard a lot of slander and we took a lot of flack as organizers that we organize the people around this. That's what we do. And this is what we got. We got people to really reimagine and have conversations, the hundreds of people on the advisory boards for the task force. We got the task force thinking about some of those folks on there weren't even thinking about defunding police. They joined it just to block it and look at how much we passed and got through. We got people to really move their hearts and minds um, to, uh, to really make these recommendations. And now what we have to fight up against is Mayor Libby, Libby Schaff and Ed Reskin, that city administrator, who are going to try to block this. We already see that um, Libby is on a path 
uh, to on on the, the you know the the news reels um, talking about um, how this um, funding coming from the federal government, the relief package, the 192 million, she wants it to go to the police. She has mm. this whole time been lying to the community about the cuts and um, and their disinvestment. One, the disinvestment of their communities over her tenure as mayor, but also that. Uh, it was her administration that made Liz, cuts Liz, I'm to, sorry to break to in on community. you, but we're over time, and I know for certain uh, that we're going to pick up the question of where that federal money is going uh, next week before the city council meeting. I want to thank you both so much for speaking to us this morning. Thank you. Thanks so much, Brian. Those are the voices of Liz Suck, Interim Executive Director for Oakland Rising, and James Birch, Policy Director of the Anti-Police Terror Project. That takes us to... All right, so... This was from uh, KPFA up front, and we'll provide a link to this on our website. Lots of really great information there. And since uh, I am not on the uh, airwaves and the show's uncensored, I'll just say fuck Libby Schaff. Yeah, uh, there we go. Putting it out there in the universe. Uh, I know the more <sighs> if I can step back and be all peaceful and woo-woo and like, oh, one day maybe folks will wake up and realize that I don't know, supporting <sighs> violence against communities isn't the answer. I mean, it seems like it's, uh, it's a no-brainer. However, there are folks, people in positions of power who still support it and um, anything that one can do to push back against that. Again, I'm with the pushing back against because a lot of it's, it's that. Unfortunately, living a, a life where you can be with friends and family and do what you please as long as you don't hurt others and take care of the planet and each other. That should be the, I think that's our, our, that should be the standard. And unfortunately, we have to push back against all this militarism and violence in our communities and the people who fund it, really. So glad that there are, uh, things are looking up in many ways. Not that, not that there's not a fight. However, there are a lot of people pushing for what's right. I'm going to play some music, and then I'm going to get to some more articles before we uh, wrap up. And uh, yeah, we got some time here. So here's some more music. Uh, this is a, from a song called, this is a song called uh, The Supremacy of Pure Artistic uh, Feeling by a band called Self-Defense Family. My
Hi, welcome back. Heard some music there. The first two songs were from a band called Self-Defense Family. Uh, the first was The Supremacy of Pure Artistic Freedom. Excuse me, Artistic Feeling. And then the one after that is Rest in Peace for the Error Shall Not Be Repeated. And then a song, uh, Era Festivus, ASOT 955, uh, Luminin and Gather Remix. And um, that was from... I'm not perhaps connected to the band gather perhaps not but you know cool to have uh different types of music and i'm feeling a wow just lots of emotional overload for certain so going to continue along here and we're going to move into uh some stories about organizing labor organizing and one is from Mission Local here. This is uh, Dandelion Chocolate Employees Will Seek to Unionize. This was written by Julian Mark. came out on March 17th. While chocolate factories tend to be the substance of dreams, workers at Dandelion Chocolate in the Mission District say their experience has instead become a chocolate-covered nightmare. There's been a long pattern of difficult decisions made for us, uh, especially a lot of things that have come into focus over the last year during the pandemic said Christine Keating, who has worked at Dandelion for nearly seven years. That includes worker safety hours and overall working conditions during the pandemic, a particularly stressful time for factory and food service workers locally and across the country. She said that as employees have been cut, chocolate production goals have ramped up. Even before that, Keating added, people who ha brought up problems were treated like they were the problems, and they, and they were the ones who felt this way, and they were... Uh, siloed and retaliated against. 
So Dandelion, Dandelion employees are kicking off a campaign to form a union, the last effort in a union, unionization wave that has swept several mid-sized businesses in San Francisco, including Anchor Brewery and Tartine Bakery. And like those businesses, Dandelion is doing so under the aegis of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Local 6. The Dandelion workers formally informed Dandelion's leadership of their intention to unionize this morning, and an election will likely be held in four to six weeks. Right now, 50 employees are on board, Keating said, though some of her coworkers are still on the fence. Obviously, we're trying to stand together in solidarity for better wages, a safer workplace, and accountability and transparency, she said. In an interview, Todd Masonis, Dandelion's owner and founder, did not sound outright resistant to the effort. Anyone who's working hard for to make for a better company is something I'm receptive to, he said. I'm really eager to hear what people have to say. As he has not been given a formal letter, he would not commit either way on recognizing the union. I'm not an expert on the matter, he said. And you know what? Most bosses aren't. Uh, obviously, I would like to be become more educated. Overall, he said he understood the workers' anxiety and said that the pandemic was a challenging time for everyone at the company, noting that Dandelion almost went out of business last year. The pandemic has been challenging, and we've been doing what we can, he said. Although Keating and the other workers told Mission Local that the effort has been in the works for nearly a year and a half, decisions by Masonis in the last week put them into overdrive. Tim Ryan, a dandelion chocolate maker at the store on 18th and Valencia, said his team has been cut from around 11 to 6 workers. Wow. But they are still expected to make as many as 600 chocolate bars a day. A similar number as before the staffing cuts. We couldn't continue in on in the pace we're going, Ryan said. Yet after the workers confronted Masonis about the issue several weeks ago, the owner last Tuesday gave the workers a proposal, Ryan said. Masonis said he would pause the Valencia Street production site and transfer all production to Dandelion's 16th Street factory. As such, the chocolate makers had a choice. Take an unspecified job at 16th Street, which could pay less, or take a voluntary layoff and a $1,000 severance. Wow, that's so fucked up. He gave us until Thursday at noon to decide whether to stay or go, Ryan said. Several chocolate makers took the meager buyout, but Ryan and Chyler Baraka, another chocolate maker who was at the meeting with Masonis, decided to stay. It was more like an ultimatum, Baraka recalled. Masonis said that his decision to shut down the Valencia site had more to do with addressing the concerns about the production pace while taking the time to more thoughtfully build a team up at the location. He added that the employees were offered equivalent roles at 16th Street, though their schedules would still need to be hashed out. Furthermore, he said the $1,000 severance for employees that chose to leave would have, co um, would have come with six months of unemployment with benefits from the government. Not a terrible deal, he said. But Keating said the low staffing and higher expectations extends to other areas of the business that specializes in producing its high-end handmade chocolate. She said the team that wraps the chocolate bars, all done by hand, including the pristinely tied bow ties on gift boxes, has been shaved down to just a handful. It's very detail-oriented work, she said, but that work has caused a lot of repetitive stress injuries for the workers. Meanwhile, Dandelion is producing more chocolate this year. In the first two months of the last year, Dandelion was producing between 24,000 to 31,000 chocolate bars per month. This year, production has jumped to between 35,000 and 36,000 a month, she said. And physical conditions of the job are not Dandelion's only problem, the workers said. 
Last summer, Mission Local reported that racism and a lack of diversity permeated the company's culture, and leadership took few steps to cure it, according to former workers there. Although Dandelion took a few performative steps to address the issue following the bad publicity, nothing has really changed, Baraka said. Masanis rebutted that the company has fulfilled numerous commitments to making Dandelion more inclusive, such as implicit bias training and hiring diversity consultants. But he said, we're committed to doing more and will continue to do more. The nascent or unionization effort could be facing an uphill battle. Although Masanis did not outright reject the effort, other local organizing efforts have been met with resistance from business owners. In December, a years-long unionization effort by veterinary technicians oh, at the VCA Animal Hospital in the Mission was quashed after the multi-billion dollar VCA corporation shut down the site and sold it to a local hospital. Fuckers. Meanwhile, Tartine's owners have resisted the union, and right now its formation is being battled out in the, at the National Labor Relations Board in Washington, D.C., according to Augustin Ramirez, an organizer with the ILWU who is helping Tartine's workers organize as well as the Dandelion employees. The workers of Dandelion saw the movement here in San Francisco with young workers, Ramirez said. This is a very young workforce. They saw what happened at Anchor and Tartine, and they're following in their steps. He added that Dandelion would not be the first chocolate manufacturer the ILWU has helped to form. Guitard Chocolate oh, has been with the union for the last 40 years. We do represent chocolate, Ramirez said. It's nothing new for the ILWU. Oh, wow. Well, much love and support to all these workers, and you can find more information, or find the article at uh, Mission Local, and we'll also post a link on our page. Moving along, uh, we have um, uh, with union uh, news uh, from Democracy Now. Three thousand Columbia graduate workers go on strike after failed union negotiations, and this is from March seventeenth. There's a brief paragraph to describe what's happening. Here in New York, over 3,000 research and teaching assistants at Columbia University have gone on strike after two years of unsuccessful negotiations with a prestigious college over their union's first contract. Graduate workers are seeking fair wages, improvements to health care and child care provisions, as well as protections against discrimination and sexual harassment at work. Workers say Columbia has threatened to withhold pay for those on strike and is spreading anti-union messaging to students. Ugh. So um, they also provide a photo here of folks on strike. So we'll um, put that on our page as well. All right. Next up, there is going to be a caravan this Sunday. This is from Indie Bay. Lots of information there, indiebay.org. Uh, San Francisco caravan and the U.S. blockade of Cuba. And this is happening. Ooh, here comes the microphone. Uh, this is happening this Sunday, March 20... Oh, no, not this Sunday, the following Sunday. So you have uh, over a week to prepare. March uh, 28th from 7.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's a protest. Uh, there are several co-sponsors and organizers, including the Answer Coalition Bay Area. I know I've heard some criticism of them. Um, and also that there's also a lot of other folks who have co-sponsored this. So we will share that information as well. Um, it's also been... Uh, so it was initiated by the San Francisco in San Francisco by the Answer Coalition and the Cuba and Venezuela Solidarity Committee. It has also been co-sponsored by the Task Force on the Americas, AIM West, Veterans for Peace, San Francisco, Chapter Number 69, and uh, the Haiti Action Committee. So a lot of different orgs have uh, sponsored this. And some more information. So again, this is happening Sunday, Ma March 28th, 1130 to 2 p.m. 
and this is happening. You can gather at 1875 Marin Street in San Francisco. It began in Miami and has spread across the U.S. Join a San Francisco caravan to demand end the U.S. blockade of Cuba. Sunday, March 28th, gather at 1130 a.m. 1875 Marin Street in San Francisco. For almost 60 years, Cuba has endured the economic, financial, and commercial blockade imposed by the U.S. government. During Trump's term, he imposed more than 220 measures to further cause harm to the island's economy and the Cuban people. In the midst of the COVID pandemic, Cuba has carried out a remarkable national policy of protecting its people. Cuban doctors have traveled worldwide to help save lives, and biotech and pharmaceutical scientists have developed a vaccine that is now in phase three testing. At a time that international cooperation is urgently needed, the, U the U.S. insists on maintaining the blockade. Now is the time to mobilize on behalf of Cuba and tell Biden and Congress, no delay, lift the blockade now. Progressive Cubans in Miami initiated the monthly caravans. They have spread to New York City, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and Seattle. Join us on Sunday, March 28th in San Francisco, initiated in San Francisco by the Answer Coalition and the Cuba and Venezuela Solidarity Committee, co-sponsored by Task Force on the Americas, AIM West, Veterans for Peace, Haiti Action Committee. We welcome your organization to co-sponsor and take part with your signs, focusing on the blockade and related issues. We will also have signs to share. And uh, for more information, you can contact them at answer at answersf.org or call 415-821-6545 to co-sponsor or for more information, spread the word. Hashtag end the blockade. Hashtag Cuba Viva. Hashtag Cuba Salva Vidas. And they have an image here that we will also share. And there's also a Facebook invite. So we'll provide a link to all that on our website, weeklyrev.org. Okay, it's 1.34. And there's definitely more information here to share. I'm going to just go right into it. I'm at that stage. Yeah. There's an article in the Examiner. I'll just share the headline. Uh, Cyclist deaths remain high during COVID-19. That's from uh, Christopher Dolan. Uh, just, ugh makes me super angry and as a cyclist that uh, I, I talk about that all the time it's just really frustrating that there's not a lot of safety and I think a lot more people would bike if they felt safer to do so oh yeah this stupid nonsense what's the show without stupid nonsense how about Kentucky Senate passing a bill criminalizing insults against police which is so fucked up so apparently uh, one can be uh, get in trouble for insulting uh, murderers now. That's that's a problem. If, if the cops murder someone, they get away with it. But if you call them a murderer, that's somehow a problem. That makes me so fucking angry. This is from WFPL. Is that it? Yes, WFPL, which is 89.3 in Kentucky. Uh, this came out on March 12th. The Kentucky Senate passed a bill on Thursday that would make it, make it a crime to insult police officers and boost penalties for rioting. Senate Bill 211 comes in reaction to racial justice protests in Louisville and across the state and country over the last year, and the bill's advancement comes just short of the anniversary of Breonna Taylor's death, which sparked some of those demonstrations. Senator Danny Carroll, a Republican from Benton, former assistant police chief and primary sponsor of the bill, said the measure was necessary to protect police officers, as if they don't have enough fucking guns. Jesus. And also... Like, uh, the shit that people put up with from police officers 
people are shot at, people are killed, people are arrested, people are harmed, people are raped by cops. This happens. And it's unfair for folks to uh, quote-unquote insult them. Wow, this is fucking disgusting. The bill passed out of said, I'm not even going to read what this asshole Carol had to say because he's a fucking jerk. Uh, the bill passed out of Senate with a vote of 22 to 11. Ugh, it now heads to the House, where lawmakers have three working days to pass it before Democratic Governor uh, Andy Bashir's veto period. The bill would make it a Class B misdemeanor if someone accosts, insults, taunts, or challenges a law enforcement officer with offensive or derisive words or by gestures or other physical contact that would have a direct tendency to provoke a violent response from a, the perspective of a reasonable and prudent person. Okay, first of all, these cops are not reasonable nor prudent. Also, they tend to arrest people and charge people with things that people haven't even done anyway. So this just looks like to give the cops more power. They often charge people with resisting arrest, even when people aren't resisting. I mean, they kill people when... Oh, gosh. Okay. It also creates new protest-related crimes. Great, because what we need is really more is more crimes out there as if... Ugh, I'm just, okay. I'm going to finish reading this article. I did meditate this morning, just letting you all know. Uh, requiring anyone charged with quote-unquote rioting to be held in jail for a minimum of 48 hours and making it a Class D felony to resist arrest during a quote-unquote riot. And, of course, we know that the police are the ones who end up starting the riots. The bill defines a riot as a public disturbance involving a group of five or more people that, by tumultuous or violent conduct, creates a grave danger for of damage or injury to property. Because, for some reason, property gets more attention than actual people. Uh or persons, or substantially obstructs law enforcement or other government function. So gross. Democratic Senator Gerald Neal represents part of West Louisville, which is predominantly black. Neal called the bill a hammer on his district. This is a bla uh, this is a backhand slap, and I resent it. I personally resent it. This is beneath this body, Neil said. Because you have power doesn't make it wise to use it. Because you want to express your feeling doesn't mean you have the answer. You don't know what's going on in my district. Carol, who lives in Benton, a little more than 200 miles away from Louisville, said, she's 200 miles. Said he was ashamed of the protest. Oh, what a fucking asshole. Oh, this guy's. He's fucking worse than Louis Bichette. Fuck this guy. I'm not gonna... Ew, what a fucking jerk-off. Gross. I'm not gonna continue to read what he has to say. Um, local police determined that vandalism was not protest-related. Um, uh, Senator Reggie Thomas, a Democrat from Lexington, said that Carroll was trying to criminalize protected speech. The message he's sending is very loud and clear. If you engage in a protest rally from now on, you do so at your own peril because you're going. we're going to come and get you. Thomas said. Six Republicans joined all Democrats in voting against the bill, uh, with many voicing opposition to criminalizing insults against police officers and the provision requiring people arrested on protest-related charges to be held in prison for at least 48 hours. Ugh. Well, let's hope this doesn't fucking make it very far. And also, big fuck you to Danny Carroll. Putting that out there. And this is the senator, Danny Carroll, just to be clear. I'm sure there are other folks with that name. Uh, but this is a Republican from Benton, Danny Carroll. Fuck you. Okay. Whew. How about some music? <laughs> now I feel like playing some more of that punk music. And then we'll wrap up the show uh, after this. Here's a song. The title is called Hate Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. Whatever. Here we go. Yeah. 
who were killed, and that would be just gonna breathe a deep breath here. Uh, Young AU and Sun Cha Kim, and also the name of Julie Park, uh, Sun Chung Park. Let's end the episode here. Okay, and did want to also play a clip from, and I apologize for going so, and it's, there's, I mean, that's the issue I write now is that there's not, there's so much to grieve and be fucking angry about and also learn about and understand about and to be aware of. And also with this age of I- the internet, there's like constant data all the time. And again, this is, yeah, I'm here for two hours a week and this is just barely scratches the surface sometimes. I'm going to play a clip from Democracy Now! And also, I think there was a couple more headlines. I was going to share at least um, Democracy Now! They also that uh, newly formed musicians union demands Spotify pay artists a penny per stream up from zero point, er, 
point zero 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 thirty eight of a cent. And also, uh, Kamala Harris's brother-in-law becomes one of Uber's top-paid executives. Eek. That's an article from Bloomberg Law. And, oh, there's so much more here. Also, uh, report finds a third of COVID deaths tied to lack of insurance as Dems reintroduce Medicare for All. That's from Democracy Now! And I'm going to just leave it at that. There's, oh, oh, and one, oh, there's so much. One more thing I'm going to get to is just there's a thread on Twitter we posted a link to. This is from Pam uh, Campos, who, to be clear, last year, over 30 Fort Hood soldiers that we know of were found dead on or around base. Secretary of Army appointed civilian review said Fort Hood officials who handled Vanessa Guillen's murder were incompetent and a man in charge of review team's answer is giving them more money. Again, another reason to fucking defund the military. Okay, we'll be sharing these links. Uh, most of these links here on weeklyrev.org. I'm going to play this clip from Democracy Now! and then finish up with some music. Whew, what a what a week. Oh my goodness. Okay, here we go. And this is uh, Chokwe Antar Lumumba on the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi. And you can find this also at the Democracy Now! Uh, what we suffered uh, after... Uh, after the two winter storms, and, and I need to make certain that I clarify that, uh, that we had two consecutive storms that took place, uh, leaving us in uh, prolonged low temperatures in the city of Jackson, historically low temperatures in the city of Jackson. Uh, and what it did was it created complications getting water into our treatment facilities. Uh, the raw water screens are at the inception point of the water treatment facility uh, in which they froze. Uh, and because we couldn't get, we couldn't get water in, uh, it, it complicated or made it impossible for us to clean water uh, and get water out, uh, leaving our distribution system uh, compromised. And, and as consumption was high, uh, it drained many of the tanks across the city. And our PSI, our, our water treatment facility, operates off of hydraulics. The PSI went down to 37. We need our PSI at about 90 in order to distribute water throughout the system. This is on account of an age, uh, aging uh, infrastructure of, of a legacy city, uh, money which has not been contributed over time. Uh, while the city of Jackson contributes millions of dollars each and every year uh, and has done so uh, since, uh, since Kane Ditto, before Kane Ditto, and continues to do so, uh, what we have not is had a state uh, leadership that, that identifies this as not just a city of Jackson problem, uh, but a ongoing and, and shared problem of not only the city, but the state. And I'd like to just emphasize that in a few ways, if I could, Amy. One, the city of Jackson is the largest city by a factor of three, the highest contributor to revenue to the state. Uh, we are the state capital, which means that many of our properties are untaxable. We do not get payment in lieu of taxes. Furthermore, we provide water to state facilities at no cost to the state of Mississippi. So if they just paid their water bill, the city of Jackson would be in a lot better position. All right, that was from uh, Democracy Now! We'll, we'll post a link to that video. Going to wrap up, but please do check out mutinyradio.fm. Got a lot of great shows here every day of the week. Also, check out our website, weeklyrev.org. Please donate to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash weeklyrev. We also have a link set up on our website. Hope everyone has a healing, healthy week, and we'll be back next week. Take care, everybody.
bored of swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them and their own two hands. My name is Wonia Tebow of Buckskin Revolution and Alone Season 6, and I started Buckskin Revolution not just to empower people with a wider range of skills to meet their basic needs, but also to inspire them with a sense of fulfillment and connection that comes with living a little closer to the earth and using our bodies, our minds, and our very DNA for what they evolved to do to help us thrive without the need for modern technology and industry. If that sounds appealing to you, I hope you'll join me for the Fall 2020 Buckskin Revolution Online Skills Gathering, an eight-week learning experience designed to work within any schedule. It involves pre-recorded classes, live interactive sessions, and online community learning support from both myself and your fellow students. The need for these skills has never been more pressing, and Buckskin Revolution is working hard to bring them to you. I hope you can join us. Get connected with yourself and the world around you at buckskinrevolution.com. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience, like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two people's paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch a full-length movie. 
San Francisco. What are you doing this week? Come join Mutiny Radio Presents for four different comedy shows supporting local businesses in the Mission District and beyond. On Sunday, join us in the Tenderloin at Resolute Wine Bar, 678 Geary for Barrel of Laughs at Resolute, an amazing comedy show with the best wines curated by Resolute. On Wednesdays, join us at Austin.